You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Matt Feeney, who is a political philosopher, a writer, and also the author of this book, Right here. Little Platoons, A Defensive Family in a Competitive Age. Now, Matt, look, you're a political philosopher, and you know, in political philosophy, we're always focusing on things like human nature and the organization of, of society and the relationship between societies and individuals and how societies shape individuals and how individuals come together to create social units or little polises. I forget, what is it in Greek? Poli? Poles. Yeah. yeah. The uh, plural suffix is, I'm not a Greek reader or speaker, but I think the plural suffix is O-I, so I think it's poloi. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I got to dust off that part of the memory. But in this book, you describe not only there's the virtue of family and the role of family in the broader society, but also I think you diagnose gently, you gently diagnose some of the pathologies that we're seeing in the world today where the families have become enlisted in this kind of broader societal effort to create diligent and competitive and obedient individuals. I don't know if that's a fair description that there's much more to the book, but I think that coming into this as a political philosopher, as opposed to being a sociologist or or a psychologist, you offer a really unique perspective on what's happening to family life in the 21st century, particularly among the, the bourgeois families, how you describe the families that we see pushing strollers and competing to get into college around us. So it's a very personal story, and I think your interest was drawn to this primarily by your experience raising three children. Is that right? Or do you kind of go back, does your interest kind of flow back to your graduate school research? It's more like a handful of things came together. When I was asked by an editor, a friend who works at The New Yorker, to write a piece about, this is in 2016, early 2016, I was asked to write a piece about some controversy that was building around a high school in uh, suburban Philadelphia, where... A principal was trying to bring down the level of competitive intensity at the school because it was fairly typical stuff. It was a time when you were hearing about suicide clusters in places like Silicon Valley from teenage kids, especially teenage kids in intensive, kind of super competitive high school environments. And so this principal wanted to tone down intensity at his school and just the the atmosphere and cultural of competition. And so I read about this and people were making fun of it. And, I, and my first thing was to think, to make fun of it too, because I feel like I'm all for academic rigor and that kind of thing. But as I thought about it, I thought, well, this guy's onto something. And, and then that's where it brought me to my, my kind of role as a father. My kids were all either just about to enter grade school or were in grade school at the time. And I just thought, oh, man, this is such a drag. I don't want the kinds of things that these families that this principal is having to deal with, the, the kinds of things that they were throwing themselves into and the kind of the way that they viewed their role and their function as families was just such a bummer to me. I just thought, I don't want to submit my family to a competitive system. I want my children to learn. I want them to become serious students, but I don't want that to be done for this kind of contingent reason of entering and optimizing themselves for this competition. I just thought that it was soul-sucking. I was very attracted to the idea of my family life. And I lived my life as a parent, conducting my family life as, in a way, a sort of refuge from reductive, dehumanizing forces outside our home. If I want my kids to compete, everybody has to compete now. If everyone's competing, if you don't compete, then you're screwed. Your kids are going to be on the bottom of the barrel. I had been trying not to think about this stuff. And then I was joking about it on Twitter and an editor, my editor asked me if I want to write a piece on it. And then that kind of required me to think systematically about it. 
And it just required me to confront what a what a bummer it is that this is what's for a lot of people. These kinds of forces enter into their calculations as parents and really reform people's conception of what the role is, what the role of family is, and what the role of parents is. And so in doing that, it brought me to, as we were speaking of before we started recording, I had this idea of the family informed in a certain way by my kind of study of Kant and Kant's kind of theory of culture, of a kind of aesthetic culture as a kind of readout, a refuge from the kind of reductive forces of economic life and just a place where the kind of rules of temporality and the rules of meaning are different than they are out in the other world. And I thought that, so I viewed family life as a kind of an analogy to this idea of aesthetic culture in Kant. That was like the origin, I can say the normative origins of my understanding of this. And I thought on one hand, that sounds a little bit high flown and philosophical, but on the other hand, I feel like it's a fairly intuitive conception of a family life in a different way. This is the idea of the family as kind of title of Christopher Lash's book, A Haven in a Heartless World. The idea of family as this encircled other domain that has its own rules and that is a kind of zone of a kind of freedom from these outside forces. And so that was the original way in which confronting this issue made me formulate my sense of what family was for and what its virtues were. But then, interestingly, it turned, there's a certain sense of which in the middle of kind of writing this piece, my conception of this relationship turned from being simply like in this kind of negative freedom mode of the family as a base of protection against these outside forces. And I realized that in this particular regime that we're living in now, family gets refigured to become this kind of productive force where families are, in order to compete with each other, undertake um, all these kind of optimizing strategies. And on the other side of these efforts, are these institutions which absorb and grow from the efforts that the, these families are putting out. In the article that I wrote, the, the thing that I ended up focusing on, and it really is the ultimate focus of my book, was the college admissions process and the college admissions bureaucracy and the way in which the efforts of families, and at this point, high schoolers and ambitious teenagers, the way in which their competitive attitude toward each other spurs to a kind of willingness to work um, on their application selves and the way in which this competition seeds just tremendous amounts of moral and cultural and psychological power to these institutions, to the personnel of these selective admissions bureaucracies. And people don't really stop to think about just how much power, really direct, intimate power, the, the personnel of college admissions, especially selective college admissions bureaucracies have over the kind of inner self-conceptions of teenagers. And I thought this is a real powerful and disturbing example of the political relationship between families and institutions such as the admissions bureaucracy, which in this competitive regime end up taking on almost a kind of quasi-sovereign leverage over their subjects. That is to say, there's no exit, really. There's no option for exit. You pretty much have to play the game according to the rules that they set. And they have this very benign view of themselves. And so they uh, observe very few checks on the kinds of influence that they see themselves as justified in exerting. And so anyways, I ended up working backward from there and just like seeing the way in which that particular process of institutional integration of families plays out at earlier and earlier stages of parenthood and childhood. So, I mean, I think the liberal political economy that we all believe in or subscribe to in the United States and other parts of the West is that we've got individuals, kind of a Lockean view, we get these individuals and they get together and form families and then the families get together and create these civic society and then government's up there doing our bidding. 
which contrasts with the view that everybody's essentially a soldier in the army of the government. If you think about Nazi Germany, where it's like, hey, the family is there to manufacture right soldiers for the army. It's just an extension of the state. And so we tend to believe that this liberal idea is the world we live in, but we're blind to the ways in which we're obeying things that are more or less beyond our control. A lot of people point to the market and how the market has this impact on us. You have a chapter where you talk about how all of us are becoming kind of, you know, we're automatons with engineered machine engagement, right? You're talking about how kids become slaves to their devices. But it's also this marketplace for college admissions. And it is a market and no one forces anybody to go to college. But I think if you want to succeed and you want to achieve any kind of status, then you have to go to college in today's world. And you feel like you have to go to the best college that you can get into. Is this argument part of a broader argument about how the autonomy that we think we have as individuals and family is something of an illusion and that we're really marching to pressures in the way that Foucault describes in our society? Yeah, I would say that there's a way of taking this argument about the unfreedom that coincides with the kind of market liberality. And at least in, in the book, I tend to shy away from a broader structural explanation, kind of say Marxist, I'd say theory of ideology or something like that, or explaining the ways in which we're not as free as liberal economic theory would say we are, and focus instead on the particular institutions that, you know, that in historical time have evolved, not just the, the institutions like the college admissions process and other things, but also the behaviors themselves that have evolved in relation to specific changes in the economy. So latently, there is this possibility that in a world of economic freedom, we can work ourselves into condition of unfreedom in various ways. But the story that I tell is that there's a particular kind of historical development, which is to say that the development of the knowledge economy, the, the retreat of unionized blue-collar jobs, things like that, where um, the salience of a college degree increased dramatically. I'm not an economist, and so you might quibble with my claims about the, the economic changes, but one of the things that seems to have happened is this became a kind of mantra in our society is that parents absorbed this message, and the most far-seeing parents, the parents with the greatest sense of agency, took it upon themselves to change how they started raising their kids. And I'm speaking about a time, the data converged to say that this started to happen really in the early 1990s, where, first of all, the messaging about the economy was much more about going to college. Public policy, the Clinton administration very much was oriented toward kind of maximizing the number of kids who went to college. And it was largely a response to the changes in the economy where it said, well, pretty much you got to go to college now because you can't have a middle-class life if you're trying to work from a high school diploma. And so these are the material and public policy inputs of this process, which then going to get channeled through the minds and stratagems of anxious parents. And as I describe it, it becomes a feedback loop. So you end up creating a unfreedom that I talk about is, is con consistent in this kind of Hobbesian feedback loop of anxiety and fear and competitive adaptation that families undertake. So that's one aspect of it. That's one kind of like dimension of the unfreedom in that we find ourselves in this collective action problem where we're just all responding to cues from each other, which essentially amplify the signals that we're getting from politicians and from the economy and amplify it within the circuits of the feedback loop within the social system in a way that makes it perhaps at once a kind of an exaggerated depiction of reality. But on the other hand, a depiction of reality that we have to observe as real because other parents are doing it. So everybody is absorbing this fear message and adapting in a way to competitively hone their kids according to it. Then even if the fear message is in an original sense, an exaggeration, it ends up becoming the reality that we have to calculate by. 
And so in that way, that is a kind of dimension of, of unfreedom, this kind of Hobbesian state of fear, of state of war, of state of nature. But then the other side of it is the, the way that institutions evolve to dictate terms of entry to the various stages of this competition. Again, if there's no exit, if you feel like you have to participate in this system, then these institutions take on a kind of quasi-sovereign status in your life. You can't, without at least per perception that you're paying a, a rather substantial cost to exit from this, you have to basically do what these institutions tell you to do. That is a, another kind of a glitch in the system of liberal freedom, where at a certain point in which a kind of competitive mindset becomes a system in which everyone operates, then the nature of your agency within that system changes. And the optimistic Lockean view of people operating at this sub-governmental level free of coercion does not entirely fit. So part of it is this collective action problem where the outcome really does matter. The status is real and the capacity to achieve this status is a function of the quality of the school you get into and the quality of the you know education you get further up the supply chain. But then there's another piece which is more empirical. Is this actually real? Now, if it is real, then there's nothing you can do as an individual parent to opt out of this, because if you opt out of this, then potentially your child is going to fail. But if it's not as real as we think it is, then there is some way that we can opt out of at least the exaggerated fear element. So we can start with the empirical question, which is, does it really matter? So does it matter in terms of the long-term success and happiness of your child? Does it matter what school they get into, right? what college they get into, what high school they get into, what nursing, what daycare they get into, right? At the end of the day, does it matter? Does each step along the way, you mentioned in the book about even parents-to-be starting to fret over what daycare their kid gets into because they think that's going to impact what private school to get into and how well they do and then what college they get into. And ultimately, presumably, the parents are not just, that's not where the concern ends. They're really interested in the happiness and prosperity of their kids and grandkids. So does it matter as much as people think it does? I think it's an empirical question, right? Right. And I think the most natural place and the place that I discuss in my conclusion, somewhat ambivalently or like non-committally, to examine this question on the matter of admission to college and the way in which admission to a given college or a different college affects one's earnings. I've not seen studies that, that attempt to measure the life success or happiness or virtue of the other of, of people, depending on how they conduct this stuff. So instead, it's about how much money your kid makes when he graduates from Harvard rather than from the University of Michigan or whatever. And Kruger, the late economist, generated a couple of studies that were fairly skeptical of the idea that where you go to college is really important. I take a great deal of heart from these studies because the lesson from these studies seems to be who your kid is matters more than what college they go to. Yes, kids from high-ranked colleges make more money than kids from lower-ranked colleges, but if you actually look at the incomes of kids who could have gone either place, it's a wash. It's more of a selection effect than a treatment right. effect. Well, actually, selection effect. There's another study that compared kids who are right at the cutoff line for acceptance into flagship universities nationwide or flagship universities. It was in Texas, but showed basically this arbitrary one-point cutoff line for the first A and SAT score to get into a flagship university. The kids who went to flagship universities did, in fact, make more money than the kids who went to the less highly ranked state universities with more or less identical qualifications. In the empirical literature, there's a complication of the story that Kruger et al. tell. And so I don't really, I don't have a definitive answer to the question. Basically, it becomes a kind of pragmatic question about how important this stuff is to you. And I end up saying something like, well, if this really 
that important to you, then you should act as if Kruger's right. Act as if Kruger's the one who's telling the true tale about how much this competitive stuff at this stage of your kid's life, how much that matters. Ultimately, I don't really come down on one side of the issue or another. But one of the other things I point to is the idea that maybe there's a way of even within the parameters that this competition sets for us to try to elbow out as much freedom from the more and paralyzing types of competitive constraint that, that we find ourselves under. I, I speak as a, because I didn't go to a, a great school. I went to Central Michigan University. I was a screw up in high school. I was a jock and a screw up in high school. And I remember those years fondly. But at the same time, I can't say that I, I, I would have done better in life if I had actually taken my education seriously starting at some point before when I entered a PhD program. So I have a kind of an odd perspective on this because I really do have a kind of fond idea of family as a site of the kind of purposeless, useless pleasures of just goofing off and retreating from this stuff. And so when I engage with the empirical literature, I have a strong bias to believe the parts of it that tell the story I want, that, which is to say the, the story where it says your kid is your kid. You have a job as a parent to cultivate your child's virtues and abilities, but that there's a point at which optimizing that kid is an injury to that spiritual integrity and autonomy. And so that's the kind of normative, sentimental disposition I bring to the whole thing is to wish for, or to seek as much latitude within the constraints that this system imposes on us as possible. It's interesting that income is the dependent variable that people obsess on. You know, I mean, is that just because it's easy to measure? I mean, look, I'm much more aware of the business school rankings and in the business school rankings, income is first and foremost, like that's the number one thing that they use in evaluating all of these different business schools. And it seems puzzling that is now also the way in which we evaluate undergraduate institutions. It's an unstated premise. That's the only thing that matters. Now, maybe it's just the only thing that we can measure. So I don't think that we could evaluate the graduates of these different schools on things like virtue. I've had conversations, for instance, with the admissions people at my university, my business school, and try to figure out, okay, what should we be optimizing for on admissions? And do we want people who make the biggest impact on the world? Or do we want people who make the most money in the world? Do we want people who donate the most money to the school? What is it that we're trying to optimize for? And even though we talk a lot about values and virtues and so forth, at the end of the day, those things disappear and drop well, out because you can't measure them. This is one of the dilemmas of the entire thing, especially the admissions part of it that when you do try to select or optimize for these other things, I talk about that, the guy, the old Harvard admissions guy, you know, that when you do try to optimize for these other virtues in a regime in which the selection procedure is known, this, these selection criteria are known outside, they're known among your pool of applicants, your selection criterion becomes a kind of treatment influence, right? That Kids come to knowing the virtues that the school is looking for. They try to inhabit those virtues and become the people that the admissions department is looking for. It's a real dilemma. So you can't, it's really hard to humanize this process at this level of competition without turning it into just another kind of competition. And that's my hugest overriding complaint about the admissions process is the way in which there is a problem with like the reductive character of this. You're saying the problem is with competition in general. In India, for instance, everything boils down to a standardized test, and that's it. And so kids will basically spend their entire childhood just trying to figure out how to do well on these standardized tests. And I think a lot of us in the United States would look at that and say, oh, that's terrible, right? The kids' lives are ruined because they're spending all this time memorizing all this stuff, and they're not having, like, 
rich and flourishing childhoods. So we're going to select for other things. And do you run your own NGO or that kind of thing? And it's not clear that that makes the childhoods any better, right? Because then people are competing along those other dimensions. And is it just the nature? Is it just the fact that it is going to be competitive? The fact that there's a scarce thing that people are going to be fighting over that inherently is going to flow back in and redirect our efforts towards things that are competitive as opposed to good in and of themselves against some objective non-competitive metric? There, there does seem to be a kind of trade-off between a kind of resigned sociology of this stuff. You think of European countries where educational tracking happens much earlier and so for the kids who are going into the university track, the last stages of their academic life are not filled with this. They've been told they're going to university. And so the salience of which university you go to in places like Germany, France, it's different, but it's not that great. And the same as in Canada, that there's different ways in which the selection process for the university be, takes on a, a lot less significance than it does here. And I guess that becomes my focus from a reform standpoint. The kind of counterfactual that I invoke are, are the ones, you know, Canada is the one that I refer to a lot, partly because it's culturally, in a lot of ways, economically, it's our closest kin among nations. And the Canadian system is, you know, again, and this is to say that the problem, as I, as I identify it, is partly a problem of institutional design. So yes, it's going to be competitive in a lot of different ways everywhere, especially in this economy and stuff. But the institutional design of American education seems to create a particularly far-reaching and articulated set of, uh, kind of disciplinary prompts for families and kids to agree to and to conform with, where you have a system in which it's all about a test, right? And so that's one kind of deformity that's inflicted upon a, a childhood by, by a particular competitive system. Whereas in the U.S., it is about not just, the, there's still the test, although decreasingly so for reasons that are not as healthy, I think, as a lot of us like to think. But there's all these other things that, and what's disturbing about these other things is the way in which they end up supplanting parents, the ethical role of parents in the formation of their kids with this bureaucratic process in which the selection personnel send out into the world of families a set of criteria, a set of essentially character traits that they like. And then you see kids performing to embody and inhabit these character, to make themselves into the kinds of people that the admissions departments like. And I just feel like that is, from a political standpoint, that's an exercise of coercive power, intimate coercive power, that is really disturbing to me. You have this articulation of these procedures in a way that kind of reaches down into the cells and souls of, of teenagers. That's a kind of disturbing, illiberal, I mean, to me, it's, a, it's fundamentally a liberal relationship that is established between young people. I grew up during the Cold War, and for me, the textbook illiberality of, of communism was, was something like Soviet psychiatry. The idea that somehow that the sovereign had access to the inner contents of your psyche and could dictate particular kinds of personality traits that it preferred and penalized the ones that it didn't prefer and established procedures of psychiatry to create the one and to minimize the other. And so the idea that the power was intentionally working inside the psyches of citizens was something that seems to me to be just a kind of textbook kind of modern tyranny. And I don't want to be overdramatic and say that the missions departments are doing Soviet psychiatry, but the moral reach of their procedures is, seems similar to me. And it just seems like the inner lives of kids should be off limits to bureaucrats, as far as I'm concerned. So that is the kind of the bargain that we've made, right, to have the kinds of institutions that set up these selection procedures. We don't have a single test, but we do have like 
8,000 private schools which compete with each other and with, among other things, the, the virtue seeking of their admissions procedures. And it has some really dark consequences as, as I see it. Well, I think you have an analogy, which is like social media, right? For kids, when they are creating a social media profile, maybe on Instagram or whatever, people talk about it as self-expression or empowerment. But you point out that the power really lies in the audience. Ultimately, what they're going to be trying to do is satisfy their audience and seek out positive feedback and positive reinforcement. And so ultimately, by putting themselves out there, they're essentially, I don't want to say enslaving themselves to the preferences of their customers. And parents are essentially in the business of producing a product that is in demand by these universities. Now, would this be less of a problem if there was more heterogeneity among what these different schools were looking for? If that were the case, then you could choose which market segment you want to target with your product, right? <laughs> things that you're producing out of your factory. So that if, if you're somebody who likes to make artisanal bread that's ethically sourced, there's going to be a demand for that here in Berkeley. Maybe not so much in Iowa, but you could decide what you want your kids to look like and be sure that there would be some place where they would be able to find a home at a university. So is the problem really that there's this almost lockstep conformity among admission directors, all of whom are chasing after the same uniform hierarchical ranking that is imposed on them by U.S. News or whoever. Right. This is the other complication of the liberal economic story with regard to you know, U.S. institutions is that, so on one hand, you think, well, we got all these colleges. There should be this kind of competition where you would be able to find your niche. And I don't want to say there's not the possibility of that, because at the margins, there's a fair amount of variety, but it's largely colleges that operate outside the main kind of prestige hierarchy. And you have to say that you're rolling the dice in that, right? So you want to send your kid to artisanal bread school or whatever. What if the artisanal bread market tanks with your kid trained for? So if you're going to have this kind of super specialized, you're going to go through the college process, but make it a super specialized thing, then you really better hope that there's going to be a life for people who study those things when they graduate. The school I went to had a big broadcasting and media arts department, broadcasting and TV. And the number of kids, it was very attractive. You're 19 years old, 18 years old. And you're like, well, I want to major in broadcasting. I want to be, you know, this is in Michigan. This is not like suburban elite people, but I want to be a DJ or something. Really, people thought they entered college thinking they were going to study to be a radio DJ. And so few kids got those jobs. They ended up or virtually no one. I know one guy who got a super marginal AM radio news job. But for the most part, it was just a fool's errand to, to try to do that stuff. And so that's a kind of concern that in an economy like the U.S., when you're outside the main competitive system, you seek these niche opportunities. And it's kind of cool. And it's great if you can link up. But for the most part, I think that a lot of parents would think it's a risky proposition to try to do that. So they go the main route. But the problem with that, and America has whatever, 3,000 four-year colleges and, and some hundreds of selective colleges and universities. But I talk about this, and you're, I imagine you're familiar with this research, too, on institutional isomorphism, this idea that institutions, because they're kind of competing with each other, they're all competing within the same kind of currency of status. And there's a strong tendency among these institutions to end up resembling each other. So you can't simultaneously signal viability within the competitive system and some serious institutional idiosyncrasy. If you act like you're too unique, then you're going to be weird within the competitive framework within the status framework of the institutions, which act a lot like the status framework of the applicants themselves. So there's a strong tendency toward homogeneity. There's just a powerful institutional tendency toward homogeneity, just in general, but especially in a market like the U.S. college market that is so stitched together via these rankings. 
So it ends up being like a single thing. That's how I conceive it. That the college apparatus confronts the high schooler as like one selection according to the kind of school choice model or the neoliberal economics model. This abundance of institutions should yield an abundance of choice. But in fact, that choice is an illusion. And the illusory nature of that choice, the fact that the students are all competing against each other, the colleges are all competing against each other in a perpetually desperate position, right? They're always trying to preserve their status. But it also gives them a fairly powerful leverage over students. And so there's the, the kind of neoliberal economic model applied to the abundance of American institutions that are supposed to be competing with each other does not really pay off in terms of the consumer and a real variety of choice. So maybe we can talk a bit about how this kind of flows backwards, because I certainly started thinking about colleges when I was 13, 14, whatever. But I think most of my colleagues didn't start thinking about it until they were 17 or whatever. But I think you make the point that it's almost before you even start thinking about having children, <laughs> you start thinking about this and it, and it flows back to things like competitive sports and competitive resume building and competitive daycare and so forth. And you point out, and I think lots of people have been pointing this out, that the amount of parenting that goes on is higher than it's pretty much ever been in human history. And the amount of time we spend with our kids and helping them with their homework or whatever has gone through the roof. I grew up in the 70s, so my parents were pretty much completely, you know, hands off, see them at dinner and that was about it. And they would drop me off at soccer practice. And if I was lucky, they might pick me up, but I don't think they watched too many games and certainly didn't watch practice. And what's the net impact on kids? What's the impact on parents of this hyper-competitiveness? I suppose in my book, I leave a lot of this stuff unstated, but implied. So there's this stories of fragile kids who kind of struggle to achieve independence, anxious parents, parents who can't let go. I think you had this one story where the parents were showing up for lunch in schools. I had never heard this. I was shocked, but one time there was a parent that showed up for the PhD admissions interview and sat through the PhD admissions interview here at Berkeley. I was amazed. I'd never heard of such a thing, but showing up for school lunches, that's another first. I hadn't heard of that. That's over the top. There's a story I tell about how parents become convinced. This is another way in which the signal, the kind of, you just start with the, just a minimal signal of parenting efficacy, something that comes in and you think, well, that's what I got to do. So the signal comes in that parental involvement is super important for academic success. You just learn that, right? Parental, the phrase parental involvement, you're like, all right, well, parental involvement, I got to do stuff. And so that means parental involvement at school and you go to school and the absurd uh, extreme version of this is parents who actually show up and have lunch with their kids, sitting at the lunch table with their kids. Again, this is a suburban phenomenon. I think it was first identified in Connecticut, unsurprisingly. It may be a function of the fact that parents are so busy that they don't see their kids when they get home because they're... But I think that in general, it is just the, the sense of wanting to optimize your hands-on time with, or maximize the amount of hands-on time you have with your kids. And combined with this ideology of parental involvement, which as I treat it in my chapter, is a lot more complicated story than we think. Yeah, so the effect on parents really is this sense that there's always something that you should be doing. There's always, and what, my, my kid is just sitting there, he's not, doing, he's not doing math flashcards. Why isn't my kid doing math flashcards? So there's an ethos of more is more, that you can always be doing something to optimize your kid's competitive viability, especially academically. But of course, it goes into other areas as well. So I would say that it's just in general, the effect on, this is speculative, but there's a fair amount of anecdotal evidence suggests that as parenting has intensified, the children of, the, of this intensified parenting are becoming more fragile and have a hard time achieving independence. It doesn't seem to be the healthiest way to raise your kids, basically. 
But it's not just that the parents feel compelled to do this against their preferences. You highlight how this is intensely gratifying to you. Spending time with your kids is enjoyable. And could it be that even if it's bad for your kids, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna want to do it and you have to force yourself to not spend time with your kids if you're kind of interested in promoting certain characteristics of them? Yeah. And it's just in general, it's just again, there's a way in which you think that once the intensive parenting switch gets flicked on and now you're like, instead of like your kids being this half noticed underfoot characteristic of your household, as I was and my five siblings were for my parents, that instead you're like looking your kids in the eye seven, eight times a day and saying, what do you want? What are we doing now? Just this mode, it's really, it is kind of wonderful. You live this life of engagement with these beautiful little people. But the suspicion is that you're doing this for yourself. It's really wonderful for you and your kids seem to enjoy it. But you step back and you ask yourself whether or not generations were doing it wrong or perhaps doing it right for paying less attention to their kids, letting their kids figure stuff out on their own, letting their kids forge their own little micro paths throughout childhood instead of always having a parent present, asking what they want, asking what they want to do, affirming them, psychoanalyzing them. So I question that at the same time is it's really once you, again, once that switch gets flicked on and you are an attentive parent, it's pretty intoxicating way to live your life to, to just be constantly six inches away from the face of a beautiful child you love more than anything in the world. So it, does, is that good? Is that like healthy parenting? I, I'm exaggerating here. I don't actually spend that much time six inches from my kids' faces, but is, is it healthy to be that kind of like up in your kids' stuff? I think that it, it may not be. But I think the dark side of that is that certainly one of the things that I've realized as a kid that is that my parents had me in order to have me do lots of chores around the house. That's part of the reason why I existed. And I think now kids probably grow up thinking that part of the reason why they're created is to give their parents some meaning and some happiness. And presumably that puts also a lot of pressure on them to satisfy what their parents are looking for. And maybe a corollary to that is that a lot of this competition that you're talking about is not so much parental desire to see their kids succeed as much as it is parental desire to achieve some status relative to other parents. And you talk about how when you go out into public with your children, you're acutely aware of the other parents uh, observing you and how you behave with your children, that you don't own them, that you're custodian, and the community is policing you Right now, obviously, we want the community to police you in case you engage in some serious child abuse. But I think certainly where you and I live, we live in a community where that kind of judgment could be oppressive in some ways. I think certainly here in Berkeley, if in the last two years, if you walk around with your kid and your kid's not wearing a mask, you're going to get some evil eye from some neighbors right. and so forth that you're engaging in some form of child abuse. So to what extent is the parenting that we're talking about really all about intraparental competition and competing to make sure that you have the right sticker for the back of your car when the time comes? I think that's a kind of fundamental issue. So there's a chapter I have called Parenting in Public in which I just, when I wrote that chapter, I wrote it as kind of a lark. I thought it was funny just to examine the social signaling that goes on among parents. And it's not really to belittle that process, because I think it's entirely natural. We're status-conscious animals. So it's this irreducible part of our kind of psychic makeup is to worry about how we look to other people. And in, in a way, that's a very pro-social disposition. But the historical quirk that I introduce in this chapter is the fact that at a certain point, in this kind of what we are talking about before, at a certain point, parents started attending public life with their children a lot more than they used to. And not just as toddlers or whatever, but as grade school. I spent my grade school years by myself and with my friends out in the, you know, on the streets of Detroit. But my kids 
as grade schoolers, they were always with me. And so there was a way in which the natural social system of status awareness among parents would take on a more, a more intense meaning and, and force uh, among those parents when they're out with their kids. And all of a sudden, we're not only are our kids out, but we're out with them. And not only are we out, but we're out with our kids. And people can see us, how our kids are comporting themselves and how we are parenting them. And seeing other parents do that, you can't but reflect on how you're seen doing it for yourself. And so there's a way in which that kind of social circuitry of parental comparison gets intensified simply because, you know, as a parenting culture, we're simply out in the world with our kids a lot more than parents used to be. And so you just, you find yourself in that kind of mode of anxious self-assessment about how you look to other people because you're entirely aware that you're judging them or their behavior is visible to you in a way. They're open, at least, even if you decline to judge them, they're exposed to your judgment because they're out in public. It's a natural thing. I was just in Michigan over Christmas and the judgments, so in here in Oakland and Berkeley, you might get the stink eye for not having a mask on your kids or not wearing a mask yourself. I frankly almost never wear a mask when I go outside. But in Michigan, <laughs> in my small town, the opposite might be the case. Like if you're a masky Anthony Fauci type, you might have some dude walking down the street or down the aisle in a supermarket without a mask on, just absolutely giving you the stink eye for being a liberal wussy and yet raising your kids to be. So it's different in different places. But I feel there's a way I don't want to let my kind of bourgeois neighbors and myself off the hook because I suspect that there's a way in which this process is a little bit more highly advanced and a little bit more fully articulated among the kind of educated precincts of the country. In one of your chapters, you dig into youth sports and the youth sports in industrial complex. And what I found interesting about this is that some people might point to this and say, oh, this is capitalism gone crazy and there's all this money to be made. And that's not really what it's about at all. It's It really is about this status competition among parents tied up with this belief, however tenuous, that this is somehow going to give the, the kids a leg up. I was talking to Charles Whelan, who's a professor at Dartmouth, and he said that he was really glad that he lived in Hanover, New Hampshire, because the youth sport thing was relatively tame and that the kids could be part-time athletes and still feel like they were semi-successful. So how does youth sports really encapsulate, illustrate some of the pathologies of hyper-competitiveness among our families today? There's a way, there's a there's strong parallel, I think, between esports and the, and the college and what can seem like an abundance of choices for, oh, you can do your, put your kids in this or that club for your sports. The choice aspects ends up being somewhat illusory in that, like, really, if you want your kid to play a sport, and I think of soccer as my default because my kids have played soccer and I late in life became a huge soccer fan, that the problem with the argument that there's all this choice among the clubs is that the clubs are beset by the same similar forces as the colleges, which is to say that the clubs are competing with each other. They have to act like each other. And you are competing with parents. Your, your families are competing with each other. And so there's these kind of parallel competitions happening. And so if you want your kid to play a sport, if you want your kid to play a sport competitively, the competitive side of these club sports has hived off from the recreational side at fairly young ages. And you're like, well, if my kid is going to treat this sport at all seriously, he has to be or she has to be in the competitive tier. And then once you're in the competitive tier as well, everybody is acting quite competitively here in this competitive tier. And my kid is going to, if I really want her to stay in the club system, all my peers are um, their kids' extra training time and skill training and fitness training and personal training and all this stuff, then I need to do it too. Otherwise, she's going to fall behind and she's not going to be. So simply in making this choice to enter into the competitive system, you have to then submit to all the ancillary kind of competitive forces that make up, that build within this system. And the result of that 
is, uh, in a way, I think the sports chapter is the kind of hinge chapter in my book because it comes closest to kind of capturing this kind of Foucault-style argument I make about the relationship between selves and institutions. And that is that the the competitive output of the families in order to keep themselves, to keep their kids into the in these competitive club systems inspires a kind of, or instigates a kind of set of adaptations within the clubs themselves. The club system is very different in the U.S. than it is, say, in, in European countries where the work club sports or where youth sports are run through generally academies that are owned by professional sports clubs. And, and so our parents have a lot less input in how things are done. In the U.S., the parents and the institutions exist much more closely together. They're, they're partners, really, in the process. And so the clubs, because of the competitive imperatives that kind of that, that hover above of parents, and, and also because of the competitive imperatives that, that the clubs feel in competing with each other, that they have the strong incentive to enlist parents in basically performing the functions of the club. So the club becomes this weird hybrid thing where it's a club. It's a club that does all this incredibly elaborate stuff that costs a lot of money, like traveling to tournaments, not just weekend tournaments, 100 miles away, a couple times a year you go and you fly to a different country or whatever. And the parents are the ones who are paying for this stuff. And the parents and the parents are driving their kids to soccer practice many times a week, and they're paying for the chiropractors and their personal trainers and stuff. And so it's this weird thing where you have a club system, which requires a, com a, a particular degree of athletic competitive fitness among their athletes. But this competitive fitness is seen to not by the club, but by the parents. So anyway, it creates this kind of hybrid thing. And I kind of just find it just fascinating the way in which it illustrates a, a kind of Foucauldian process, as I see it, where we, you talked about self-expression earlier and the way in which technology companies make use of our self-expression. Our self-expression ends up being fuel for a particular uh, institutional system. And here it is this kind of similar way, our output, our competitive output as parents, our agency, which you would think of as an expression of our freedom, our agency is essentially fed into a system and the system grows by virtue of the outputs that we inject into it. In this case, all of these kind of parental efforts that these competitive efforts that, that parents do. And so you end up, you end up with this weird hybrid system where the family is part family and part club, and the club is part club and part family. So this just becomes a, almost a total degree of entwinement between the functions of the two bodies. And one just became very kind of interesting process for me to reflect on. But also, as you said, it also pushes back against the argument that kind of the more familiar and I think lazy argument that people tend to make that, well, the problem with youth sports is that kind of is money, that money, money is a problem, but it's not the problem in the way that people tend to say it. They tend to put it in terms of, well, the parents are duped by some apparatus of ideology to throw their money into this system. But that's not really... So in other words, the parents, are, the parents' agency is suppressed or deformed by a kind of advertising magic that the youth sports industrial complex kind of inflicts upon them. And I just think that this is not really a very sound description of what's happening. The parents are not passive agents of ideology or passive victims of ideology. They're much more kind of active agents of a kind of competitive process that extracts and incites their competitive output and and it turns it into the use of an elaborate kind of institutional system and in doing so it kind of redefines family life in institutional terms so that's one of the ways in which it is both disturbing from a moral standpoint but also fascinating from a theoretical standpoint you said at one point you considered becoming a teacher and you were turned off by what you learned about how teaching was taught and how there's this whole dewey approach to teaching it's very pragmatic and it's about teaching people, converting kids into useful members of society. And, and I, I've talked to a lot of people who are very critical of the, what we might call the factory-like educational process where people were effectively being trained to work in factories or be obedient, sit still, 
do what you're told, tolerate boredom, that sort of thing. And I think we've certainly come a long way. We've moved uh, away from that model. We have a very different model, particularly in the more educated communities. But I think part of what you're saying is that, that this new model, even if it's training people for the knowledge economy instead of training them to work in factories, it's still teaching them obedience, compliance, conformity. It's just for a different type of economy. I think this is like a kind of Foucault thing, right? Where there's a kind of subtraction of overt coercion you go then look for where did that power go and what did it turn itself into? And in this case, it seems like it's turned from it being simply a prescriptive process where kids are assigned social roles and trained to conform to those social roles. Instead, the imperatives become softer, uh, subtler, more psychological and moral. And uh, so on one hand, you have a process where the external influences of college create a need to turn education into this functional, this thing to rob um, education of its kind of inherent purpose. But then you also have within the schools themselves, this is a way in which, you know, so the industrial model of Dewey, Deweyism has maybe not as overt as it used to be, but nonetheless, the idea that somehow or another teaching of students has to have a strong element of social training is it's at least as powerful now. You just see it in you see it in schools where there's a kind of, part of it is in the U.S., we talk a good game about, you know, valuing education, but on the other hand, we're quite impatient about what those damn teachers are doing and all that stupid stuff and useless stuff or whatever that's being taught in schools. And so schools are in this constant kind of battle to legitimize themselves to their constituents. And one of the ways in which they do that is to claim a kind of social relevance for what's happening within the classroom. And in this imperative to prove yourself and to show your value is in a, in a certain way very much like within the, the Deweyan kind of tradition of educational thinking, even if the details have changed some. And it is really hard in American context, I think, to take something like education and grant it a kind of autonomy from the pressing functions of everyday life and to allow it to have its own internal logic. Everything has to be made to show to pay off in the long run, either in economic terms or in terms of social harmony or social adjustment of your children. And so it's an ongoing problem in this country. My book is a story about the way that American things that once were virtues or that has a kind of virtuous element to them get at a certain level of kind of institutional saturation, get turned into something that's a little bit nefarious. And, um, and so in the US, our practical streak, which is in certain ways quite virtuous, gets turned on institutions that I think ideally would enjoy a certain distance from the practical exigencies of economy and social adjustment and things like that. Mm -hmm. Schools are one, I would say things like the art world and things like that are another area in which it's very hard on America to simply have things be for themselves rather than for some larger social function. I like to think that within every good book that describes the world, there's contained within it some advice on how to live your life. And I think there is buried in your book some advice for parents. And the book is called The Defense of Family in a Competitive Age. And I want to, you know, what do you mean by that, a defense of family? Because I know some folks that, that have decided to check out of the whole competitive regime, homeschool their kids and move out to a farm and so forth. And it seems to me that kind of isolation or that kind of family atomism is not a solution. It seems very unnatural, right? The whole idea of a nuclear family as the primary entity without a broader community, without sharing the raising of children with others, seems like a very modern and awkward and unnatural invention. So how do you strike this balance? How do you, as a parent in today's world, how do you opt out of the competitive pathologies without basically destroying your children's capacity to succeed in this world? 
it's a dilemma, and I swear off offering authoritative advice in my conclusion. In at the same time, you, the people that you talk about is opting out. I have to say, there's a way in which I find it personally attractive. Like, it'd be nice to do that kind of stuff. The institutions that I feel like obliged to submit my family to, I, I'm not particularly fond of. I can't do that, partly because I'm married to somebody who's more peaceable regarding her social surroundings than I am. She doesn't want to homeschool her kids, anything like that. Not because she's lazy, she's extremely energetic, but because she just doesn't like the posture of opposition that is expressed in that and doesn't want to live in that of antagonism with her outside world. Now, it's the case, though, that like the, this idea of the nuclear family, at least in its kind of ideological origins, and also its sociological origins in the Industrial Revolution, the idea that the family was a kind of refuge from the outside world. To me, I always thought, well, that's, you're right, taken to an extreme, it, it is a kind of unhealthy development, but it's always seemed to be an intuitively reasonable response to what was happening at the time. So the outside world did get kind of ugly, right? You're not living on farms anymore. People are living in these mad cities with they're dirty and beset by these kind of new industrial forces and the kind of sacred aspects of life seem to be getting smaller and smaller. And it would make sense that people would then turn their attention to the, well, they have this one thing, these intimate relations within, within the home. So I, I've always been attracted to the idea of a family as a kind of critical uh, node within the kind of larger field of social relations, something akin to a kind of aesthetic culture of opposition. And so there's a way in which I, I'm attracted to this idea of opting out, of simply not participating, of not really drawing the circle around my family, even as I can't practically do it within my own, with my own family. But on the other hand, I, I agree, it's not, it's entirely impractical. You can do it, but that's just a way of bailing out. It's like quitting the public school system. There's still going to be a public school system that would be better if it were better rather than worse and your familial bailing out from it does not help that. And so the individualized, and I think that sometimes when I talk to conservative interlocutors, they're attracted to this kind of Benedict option of simply departing from society. I'm not really interested in that. I feel like that doesn't help any. That helps a very small number of people. You know, assuming you can make it work, because I feel like people can make it work because homeschooling actually can be fairly, it ends up being a good competitive strategy for a certain tier of people. So there's a way in which you're virtuously opting out in order to compete better. In a way, it's kind of taints the whole uh, retreat. So I feel like this is the point in the book where I simply throw up my hands and say, it would be better if we had a better society. It would be better if we had a, a society where the need to compete is weaker, where you don't feel like the stakes of failure are so great. And that that is the kind of reformist model that I ultimately arrive at. I talk myself into, after a long time of flirting with various types of kind of classical liberalism over my kind of intellectual life. I've somewhat somehow talked myself into being a soft social democrat when it comes to this stuff that the solutions that you refer to are not really individual solutions, a kind of a hyper-atomizing of individual families, but rather you achieve the good aspects of family privacy and the intimacy better when families don't feel like they have to compete so hard in the outside world, that the autonomy of family life is maybe served by a less atomized society. So this is, in a way, given my kind of intellectual background, I find myself in the, my deviations from my original influences. I find myself constantly arguing with conservatives and libertarians about this stuff, where the freedom that they vaunt, the freedom that they identify with American civil society is less free than they think it is. And that Perhaps there are freedom maximizing or freedom public policies that we would do that would in fact be not liberal or libertarian, but more like social democratic and that the family autonomy that would be better served in, in a society in which we did not feel like we had to compete so hard. Well, Matt, this has been great. Little Platoons, Defense, Family, and a Competitive Age. Check it out. I hope to hear more from you. I hope you can elaborate on these themes and expand on them. So look forward to that. 
great chatting with you. Hopefully we can uh, chat in person sometime soon. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.